Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So I do have to start tonight with a little business. Um, (laughs) In case you didn't know, this week is one of our uh, two yearly fun drives. So this is our... um, This is the week that we are asking people in the community to help us. And so if you've already donated, thank you so much. That is so helpful. If you haven't, I'd ask you to consider making a donation in order to help us stay on the air, literally. Um, And so you can do that by visiting valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And so um, as you probably already know, but we just like to remind everyone, uh, Valley Free Radio is fully volunteer run and fully supported by the community through individual donations and um, a smattering of underwriting from local businesses. And so as in the past several years, all individuals who donate, uh, their donation will be counted towards a matching fund. And so for every individual who donates, we will get an additional $10 from the estate of David Dow. And, um, you know, David cared about the studio and about the importance of local non-commercial radio. And I hope you too, do too. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, a hundred percent of the money we take in is used for expenses and upgrades to the station. And it helps to keep this unique and important radio signal streaming out into the local, national, and even international airwaves via the internet. So once again, the easiest way to donate is to go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay, so let's get started tonight with a story about beautiful music, or at least how one produces it. It's been believed for a long time that a Stradivarius violin will just sound better than most other violins, and that only other violins from this era can compete These amazing musical instruments were built during the golden age of violins between around 1660 to 1750. But why? A recent paper suggests that it's all about the chemicals that were used to soak the wood, including borax, zinc, copper, alum, and lime water. Of course, another paper, which I've actually talked about previously on the show, strongly suggests that it's mostly psychological, uh, the fact that we think that a Stradivarius or um, a contemporary violin actually sounds better. And so there was a double-blind study that was done, uh, and so they had master violinists who were given a bunch of different violins, including a Stradivarius, plus a bunch of modern ones, and they actually ranked the Stradivarius last in their preference um, between those new and old violins. And when they looked at the um, data, there was no correlation found between the monetary value of a violin and the preference of the violinist. But of course, sometimes the aura is really all that people are interested in. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. Um, 
obviously I think that music can be data driven, but also I think that a lot of people consider music to be one of those things that's a little bit more esoteric and that's fine. If you want to think that the Stradivarius sounds better because it was aged specifically in some sort of way, that's totally fine because it, it really is subjective. Um, and so let us though take for granted that the violins do have a unique sound profile. And so several theories have been developed over the years to explain the magic of these unique instruments. One hypothesis suggested that Stradivari may have used alpine spruce that grew during a period of unusual cold weather. And so this caused less growth over that time, and thus the tree rings for that wood would have been closer together, and that would have made the wood denser. Another camp focused on the varnish, positing that Stradivari had used a unique mix of honey, egg whites, and gum arabic from sub-Saharan trees, or perhaps salts and other chemicals. This theory was first proposed in 2006 by Joseph Nagavari, professor emeritus of biochemistry at Texas A&M University, who made a splash with a paper in Nature that suggested it was the chemicals used to treat the wood rather than the wood itself that was the magic. He suggested it was salts of copper, iron, and chromium, which are all great wood preservers and which may have altered the instrument's acoustic properties. He used infrared and nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy to examine the backboards of several violins. So the backboard is really where um, most of the, um, the radiation comes from of the sound. And so that's usually what people look, look at is the uh, backboard of the violin or the back of the violin. In 2008, Berend Stoll from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands collaborated with a luthier, which is someone who makes stringed instruments like a violin, named Terry Borman and took CAT scans of several Stradivari along with several modern instruments for comparison. They were interested in studying the density of the wood used since this could once again lead to differentiation in the vibrational efficiency and thereby the sound of the instrument. Um, and so interestingly, Stoll used a computer program that he'd originally developed to non-invasively calculate lung densities in patients with emphysema. And so he took that and he adapted it to the study in order to study wood densities from CAT scans. And so um, they ended up finding overall that there wasn't a significant difference between the average wood density of the classical and modern violins. But what they did find was that the density differences between wood grains of early and late growth woods was significantly smaller in the antique violins than in their modern counterparts. Basically, the wood grains of all of the wood used in the older violins was more closely 
um, connected in densities than the ones in modern, of modern violins that had wood both from old growth wood and from newer growth wood. Our results clearly document basic material property differences between the woods used by classical, cremonese, and contemporary makers, the authors concluded. In 2016, another study on the varnish was conducted at the Swiss Federal Laboratories for Material Science and Technology. This study indicated that the varnish's chemical composition thickness and the degree of penetration all affect the acoustics of the instrument. They cut samples of tone wood from the same Norway spruce tree and coated the samples with different kinds of varnish. Two they created themselves and two from German master violin makers. They then conducted vibration tests of the samples using X-ray tomography to measure the effects. They found that all of the varnishes increased the wood's damping ability, how well it absorbs and stops vibrations. This then led to a better sound than unvarnished samples. They also found that varnishes from the German luthiers performed slightly better than the others in increasing the warmth of the sound and allowing for better sound radiation. A 2017 study by Taiwanese researchers compared the maple used in Stradivari to modern high-quality maple wood. They showed evidence of aluminum, calcium, copper, and other elements in the aged wood. They further found that, due to decomposition of an element of wood called hemicellulose, Cremonese violins in the study had 25% less water than modern instruments. This is fundamentally important because the less moisture, the more brilliant the sound, Nagavari told the New York Times at that point. And so this newest study analyzed trace chemicals found in the maple wood used to make the sound boxes of Stradivari and Andrea Guanari, a contemporary luthier from that Cremona, Italy um, area and time. The researchers had access to a rare collection of Cremonese wood samples of spruce and maple used by Stradivari, Guarneri, and Andrea Amati. They compared the results to modern spruce and maple tonewoods, as well as to samples from antique Chinese zithers and lead and other less lauded antique European violins. In the wood from the Cremonese era, they found evidence of borax and several metal sulfates. Borax, or sodium borate, is a cleaning agent and in the past was also used as an insecticide and fungicide. Copper and zinc sulfates were most likely also used to prevent pests. Alum, a mineral containing sulfur, aluminum, potassium, and sodium, would have created a weak acidic environment inhibiting mold growth. Finally, halite, or basic table salt, was added to aid in moisture control, drying the wood to again inhibit the growth of microbes and fungi, and also to prevent or to help prevent deformations of the wood caused by humidity fluctuations. I believe that chemically processed wood was the missing key that prevented us from reproducing Stradivari's tone, 
co-author Bruce Tai told Ars Technica. Nagvari is also a co-author on this latest paper. This new study reveals that Stradivari and Guarneri had their own individual proprietary method of wood processing to which they could have attributed a considerable significance, he told Texas A&M Today. They could have come to realize that the special salts they used for impregnation of the wood also imparted to it some beneficial mechanical strength and acoustical advantages. These methods were kept secret. There were no patents in those times. How the wood was manipulated with chemicals was impossible to guess by the visual inspection of the finished product. Now, of course, as I said at the beginning, though... (laughs) It could be all in our heads, Um, but it's really interesting to know what kinds of um, varnishes they used and how that affected the um, wood, but it's important to remember that this sort of thing is subjective and, um, but, you know, it's still really important to kind of suss out the actual chemical compositions and things like that, because it can, you know, give us real insight into how people were using materials in the past. Um, and I think it's so amazing how many different kinds of new technology there are that are able to be, to be, uh, turned to the use of figuring out the material properties of ancient and, uh, I should say antique, I guess, um, objects. And so, you know, the fact that you can do CT scans and you can do, um, all sorts of, uh, x-ray chromatography and, um, just all of the different kinds. We'll talk about other kinds of interesting, um, measuring tools, uh, as the, uh, evening goes on. And I just think it's really cool that we're actually being able to find out what the chemical composition of those things are now. Um, and one of the interesting things is that, you know, they were saying, and we, I talked about it a little bit when, um, I mentioned the scientist who basically converted his, algorithm for looking at a medical problem to wood that a lot of these um, researchers are actually doing this on their own time. And so they are just really interested in this information and that they're actually working on other things as their quote unquote day job. Um, And so hopefully more collaboration will happen. I know that, um, that Nagaji um, was really, or Nagavari, uh, sorry, um, was really interested in continuing to work with luthiers and with curators and um, preservationists in order to continue to try and figure out more about how these amazing violins were put together. Um, even if they don't sound spectacularly better than modern ones, they're still, they have a, they still have a very interesting and, um, important value nonetheless. Um, and so it's really interesting to learn more about them. Okay. So before we move on, I once again want to mention that this week is our fun drive week. So if you have 
not given yet, now is your chance. You can just go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And again, every dollar helps. If you only have a dollar, that's okay because that dollar will be turned into $11 with the generous matching gift being offered. So again, every individual who donates, we will get an extra $10 um, to be donated to the fund. And so please consider making a donation this week uh, to help us boost the impact of your generosity because it really makes a difference this week. Um, you know, if you have even a dollar, it will be really helpful. Um, and so I actually knew David Dow. Um, Dave was a really great guy and, um, he really actually did have a passion for, um, the radio show. And even as he was, um, getting sicker, um, towards the end of his life, he came out especially to see his brother, um, here in the studio doing his show and to learn more about it. And, um, you know, the more money that we raise, the better we can make this place and the more we can do what we really want to do, um, which is to make this a space available to the community in order to be able to really work on projects and do studio time in our secondary studio, um, to be able to work in that studio while um, someone else is on the air. And so, yeah, all of your donations help and, um, we get, we do really get great support. I don't want to discourage you from, um, donating because of that, because if no, if everybody says, oh, well, someone's already done it, then no one will. Um, but I do want to thank people, um, who have already donated sincerely because, um, we've just had such great support in the last couple of years, especially since this has been a rough couple of years. Um, and so it's been really heartwarming that people have stepped up in order to help support the station and to keep the rent paid and the lights on. Um, I always say that every, every time because it's very true. Um, this is absolutely the kinds of things that we spend um, the money on that we make during these fun drives. Um, so yeah, and hopefully in the spring and summer, we'll have uh, some opportunities to get out into the community and that'll be pretty cool. Um, I don't know that we have anything planned yet. We usually go to Pride, um, but I don't know how Pride is going to go this year. Probably it's outdoors. Um, oh, to that end, um, I will say uh, just a quick foray into the world of COVID um, that I uh, do highly recommend at this point um, getting a booster shot. And I actually am getting mine on Monday. Um, and I am definitely excited about that uh, where I work. Uh, I work at a college and we continue to get emails about people, uh, who have contracted, uh, COVID. And so I think it's really important to get the booster now. Um, again, my moral objection has been basically swept aside by the fact that obviously, um, the boosters have been distributed for use in the U S. Um, and, uh, though I did read something incredibly 
uh, upsetting the other day. Uh, just a just a quick aside about uh, medical profiteering. And so I did see, I didn't read the whole article, but there was a mention that AstraZeneca wants to start uh, to make a profit on its vaccine. And obviously, I think that is absolutely obscene. And um, I, I often joke with my friends that we live in the darkest timeline, but um, I think it's really important for people to speak out about that kind of thing because, um, you know, this this is a global health crisis and there is no room for profiteering. Uh, even though I know there is absolutely profiteering going on uh, right now, uh, <laughs> let's, let's be perfectly honest. Um, I think that we should strive to speak out against such things. Um, you know, there is so much going on in the world, so many injustices, so much, um, you know, so much that could be solved by really easy solutions. Um, but people just don't have the have the uh, will to do it. And it's, it's sad and it's frustrating. And I think it's important, especially, uh, you know, as we turn towards the holidays, it's the time of year that people start to remember, oh yeah, um, maybe I should donate to a charity or something like that, um, that we should be keeping each other in mind. And, um, you know, study after study has said basically that the people who have less are on average, more generous. Um, and so even though that's a depressing statistic, um, I think that it is really helpful for people to, um, try and look out for one each other, one another at this time of year. Um, so, uh, to that end, I hope that everyone is going to have a safe and, um, happy Thanksgiving and that you all have a place to go and, um, that you all, are going to have good food on your table. Um, yeah, sorry. This got off on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> sorry about that. Let's move on <laughs> and talk about a different kind of beauty, printed color images. And so conventional printing, while able to produce some frankly, pretty amazing results these days, uh, isn't exactly environmentally or in many cases, even user friendly. Uh, the production of pigments can be a bit of a nightmare environmentally, and they're constantly running out, even when you swear you just replaced them, um, or it's always the same color. Um, <laughs> why? Why does everything require so much yellow? <laughs> but anyways... Of course, and then you have all these empty cart cartridges, and how do you dispose of them properly? Eek. Um, and so obviously, this is an active area of research for innovation. And so a new player has emerged in this alternative space. And so researchers from the Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute of Chemistry, insert warnings about China and feeling conflicted about China's human rights violations while acknowledging that America also is engaging in human rights violations. <laughs> so yes, um, they found a way to use transparent ink to print images in a full spectrum of colors. 
And so previously, researchers at the Missouri University of Science and Technology used a laser to create microscopic holes in a metal in order to create structural colors similar to that of some butterflies. However, this technique can only produce a small color palette. The new system also uses structural color technology, but it can reproduce a wide spectrum of colors and uses standard inkjet printer hardware. And so inkjet printers create an image using microscopic droplets of ink in various sizes and colors. It's a form of pointillism, um, where up close the dots of colors look like a random jumble, but when you step back, they form a coherent picture. And so the researchers modified a printer to use just a single polymer ink that is transparent to our eyes, actually. The technique requires printing on glass rather than paper, but that still has many potential applications, even if it's not to replace your standard paper printer at this moment. The glass has a hydrophobic surface so that when the water-based ink droplets are deposited on the glass, they form a structure or a tiny dome. They were able to harness the surface tension properties of the liquids and the hydrophobic effect of the glass to modify a printer to create domes in different sizes and shapes, creating what is, in essence, a field of thousands of tiny lenses. Because of the reflective properties of the ink domes, a variety of colors can be viewed by the human eye. Combining them in large quantities can create an image just like a standard inkjet printer, but with an added bonus. The image is only visible on one side of the glass. This means you could, for instance, create glass with an advertisement or a sign on one side of the pane of glass and be able to see out unobstructed from the other side. Through manipulation of the shape and patterned structure of the microdomes, the researchers believe they'll be able to master saturation, lightness, and other elements of color. Right now, however, they're focusing on proof-of-concept materials, detailed, recognizable images with limited color palettes. And because there are no pigments to fade, a print made in this way, well, it will never fade. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I definitely love the fact that it's kind of a one-way um issue where you can see it on one side and not on the other. I think that's actually pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so it's certainly not going to replace, you know, your, your standard inkjet printer tomorrow, but I like the fact that people are thinking about ways in which to move away from using inkjet printers, which, um, you know, have environmental issues going on. And, um, yeah, so definitely need to move on from that. But of course the other version, the laser printer, nobody, you know, we, we can't have everybody have a laser printer in their, um, you know, houses cause those are very expensive and maybe that is the future. Maybe you can find a way to, uh, create better laser printers, but even those, um, I think have pigment. I don't remember offhand. Anyways, <laughs> it is time to take a break. What a good idea. Um, and so we're going to do some show promos and some PSAs, and then uh, we will come back. And when we come back, we are going to talk about blue. 
just the color blue. <laughs> All right. So hang on for just a few moments. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contain zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. But federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box who will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Hi, I'm Stacy from Evidence-Based Radio, science and skepticism with a pinch of feminism, Friday nights from 6 to 7 on Valley Free Radio. Valley Free Radio gives me a voice in the community, and it's this community which keeps us going. We're an all-volunteer station and rely on donations to keep the lights on, the rent paid, and music and information broadcasting to you. That's why I'm asking you to go to valleyfreeradio.org and donate. For every donation, a $10 matching pledge will be added from the estate of David S. Dow. David cared about community radio, and I hope you do too. So whether it's $1 or $100, please donate today at valleyfreeradio.org. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 
Northampton. For the best in electro, new wave, funk, and dance, tune into Subculture Friday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Listen from your computer, iPad, or phone by tuning into valleyfreeradio.org. Subculture Friday nights here on WXOJ. And we are back. And as promised, we are going to talk about the color blue. And the reason we're going to talk about the color blue is because it's really rare in nature. And so when we look at a sapphire or a dusky blue hydrangea, the object is absorbing some of the white light that falls onto it. Because it's absorbing some of the light, the rest of the light that's reflected has a color. Science writer Kai Cooper Schmidt, author of Blue in Search of Nature's Rarest Color, noted, When you see a blue flower, for instance, a cornflower, you see the cornflower as blue because it absorbs the red part of the spectrum and thus reflects back to our eyes the bluer wavelengths. Red has long wavelengths and is very low energy compared to other colors. On the other hand, for a flower to appear blue, it needs to be able to produce a molecule that can absorb very small amounts of energy in order to absorb that red part of the spectrum, Cooper Schmidt says. And so such molecules are large and complex, so most plants don't bother trying to produce them. Fewer than 10% of the nearly 300,000 known flowering plant species produce blue flowers. But some do, and that might be because, for instance, blue is highly visible to bees. Producing blue flowers might help plants in ecosystems with a lot of competition. Adrian Dyer, an associate professor and vision scientist at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology in Melbourne, Australia, told the Australian Broadcasting Company in 2016. And so, yeah, it's really, really unique. And actually, I'm pretty sure that we talked about the uh, quest for a natural blue dye. And so um, someone has been able to turn uh, some of the dyes in red cabbage into an actual blue dye, which has kind of uh, been a holy grail in the food services uh, realm for a while. And, you know, they had to hunt because there isn't much that actually uses blue and especially not chemical blue because minerals, on the other hand, have crystal structures that interact with ions to determine which parts of the spectrum are absorbed and which are reflected. Lapis lazuli, a mineral that is largely found in Afghanistan, produces the blue pigment ultramarine, which contains trisulfide ions, three sulfur atoms bonded together inside a crystal lattice that can release or bind a single electron. That energy difference is what makes the blue, Cooper Schmidt said. Animals with blue col coloration use physics rather than chemical pigments as well. Morpho butterflies, blue jays, blue tangs, fish, and even the venomous blue-ringed octopus 
all use nanoscale structures in order to reflect the light to showcase blue. Blue is actually extremely rare in mammals and does not occur in the visible range in fur. But of course, I'm, we talked recently about how the platypus glows blue and green under UV light. So it does actually uh, have a tiny bit of um, the ability to show blue. But for the most part, there's no animals out there with uh, blue in their fur. Um, so some mammals, like there are some whales and um, other cetaceans that have bluish colored skin. And there are some um, primates, uh, some monkeys that have um, blue um, faces and other bits of them are colored blue, but very rare in um, mammals. And so the thing about it is that, as noted before, it's hard to make things that absorb enough red in order to give you blue. It takes a lot of work to make this blue. And so the other question becomes, what are the evolutionary reasons to make blue? What's the incentive? Cooper Schmidt said. The fascinating thing when you dive into these animal worlds is always, who's the recipient of the message and can they see the blue? And so for instance, while humans can only see three types or only have three light sensing receptors in our eyes, um, for red, green, and blue, birds have four and can see in ultraviolet. So those birds who are blue to our eyes probably shine in ultraviolet light to other birds. And again, those plants that have blue probably also are very um, bright. And again, for bees as well, because bees also see in ultraviolet. Blue is also a latecomer to languages coming afterwards for black, white, red, and yellow. One theory for this is that you only really need to name a color once you can dye things, once you can divorce the color from its object. Otherwise, you don't really need the name for the color, he explained. Dyeing things blue or finding a blue pigment happened really late in most cultures, and you can see that in the linguistics. So famously, they talk about how the Greeks never use the word blue. Um, they talk about the wine dark sea. Um, they talk about all sorts of things. They never used the word blue. And so blue dyes first appeared around 4000 BCE in Peru. And of course, famously, the Egyptians combined silica, calcium oxide, and copper oxide to create the blue pigment known as irtu, or Yes, Irtu, um, and that was used to decorate statues. I always think of faience. Maybe that's uh, the pigment used to make faience. If you've ever been to um, a museum where there's Egyptian um, statuary, a lot of them are that really um, intense kind of um, um, blue-green uh, turquoise, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> and so, yeah, they were very into that. And you've probably seen the vivid blue of ultramarine in medieval manuscripts. And so this pigment was 
as precious as gold to the illustrators. And so when Ultramarine came about, it was considered this like really fantastic, amazing thing because it was so vivid and was so much of an a pop to these incredible illustrations that they were doing. Also interestingly, while blue was a latecomer to the language, it's now find, found in a variety of English idioms. And so to talk a blue streak, to feel blue, to uh, have blue skies ahead, all sorts of things. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. Um, you don't ha hear things with orange, for instance, very much. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, blue is definitely a weird and interesting thing. And I thought it would be fun to talk about tonight as we continue on with our pledge week. Uh, and so, yeah, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate to easily donate to help keep the station running. And I know that we really, really appreciate everyone's support. And um, so, yeah, shout out to people who have donated this evening. Um, one in particular I know of, and I just want to thank them very much for having donated to help keep everything going here and to keep me on the air because I like doing this and I hope that you like that I can do this. And so it definitely helps if you, um, again, a dollar equals $11. And so if you only have a dollar, we will gladly take that and thank you very much for it. Um, so yeah. Okay. Let's move on from blue to something that is ideally clear. A new mineral has been discovered inside of a diamond. Named Davemanite after geophysicist Ko Huang Mao, or Dave Mao, um, the mineral is the first example of a high-pressure calcium silicate perovskite, which is calcium silicon oxygen 3. So it's C-A-S-I-O-3. Um, so it's the first time it has been found on Earth. Now there's another form of perovskite known as wollastonite, which is common across the globe, but Dave Davemoite has a crystalline structure that forms only under the high pressure and high temperatures found in the Earth's mantle. So that's the bit between the outer core and the crust. It's that big stretch of uh, material that's kind of the um, bit that is the, the solid uh, part before you get to the uh, outer core, which is liquid. Interestingly, Dave Moite has been theorized to be abundant in the Earth's mantle, but until now it hadn't been detected because it breaks down into other minerals as it moves towards the surface where the pressure is less. But analysis of a diamond from Botswana, which is thought to have formed in the mantle some 410 miles below the surface, 
has been found to have an intact inclusion of Davemanite. The discovery of Davemanite came as a surprise, lead author Oliver Schauner, a mineralogist at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, told Live Science. Schauner and his colleagues found the new mineral with synchrotron X-ray diffraction, which uses a high-energy X-ray beam to focus on spots within the diamond with with microscopic precision. By measuring the angle and intensity of the returning light, researchers can determine the internal contents. The sample found is just a few micrometers in size, and so a less precise sampling technique would have missed it. The mineral is theorized to be an important geochemical agent in the Earth's mantle. Scientists believe it may have trace elements of radioactive elements such as uranium and thorium. If so, Davemanite may be responsible for generating a substantial amount of heat in the mantle through radioactive decay. And interestingly, the diamond was actually found in a layer of the mantle that was lower than people actually believed that diamonds could be found in. So that's pretty incredible too. So they didn't think that diamonds were able to be formed that deep in the mantle. And then of course, the way that most diamonds end up on the surface is that they form in the mantle and then they are pushed up usually in um, uh, volcanic eruptions. And so they are moved up in um, as the magma moves up, uh, diamonds come up with it. And so, yeah. And so you often find diamonds in basically old lava tubes, for instance. And so that is definitely something where you're able to then take these diamonds and they've actually found a lot of diamonds with interesting inclusions in them. And so this is a whole kind of new um, way in which to find elements that are deep in the mantle is to use diamonds. The work by Shower et al. inspires hope in the discovery of other different difficult high-pressure phases in nature, Ying Wei Fei, a geophysicist at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C., who was not involved in the study, said in a related science article. Such direct sampling of the inaccessible lower mantle will fill our knowledge gap in chemical composition of the entire mantle of our planet. Because again, even though it seems very odd, there's a lot we don't know about what's going on in the mantle. It's hard to study because we actually can't get to it. Um, So if you think about deep boreholes, none of them has gotten even close to the mantle. Um, You know, eight or nine miles down is still well within the crust of the earth. And so we have to learn a lot from indirect measures, from things like inclusions and diamonds and that sort of thing. Um, And it's 
really hard to not know about <laughs> a huge part of our, uh, you know, planet. And so one of the things is that we know that there must be this radioactive um, heating that's going on in the uh, mantle, but, you know, the actual details of it aren't necessarily well known. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty interesting and amazing to be able to find something that people totally thought was there and couldn't access. And now, again, because we have this really uh, new and interesting and precise measurement ability, we are able to find this tiny, tiny bit of something and be able to know what's going on. So that's pretty exciting. And so, yeah. All right. Just one more plug for the uh, pledge drive, and then we were, we're going to finish up by talking about uh, pearls. So again, um, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, if you enjoy what I do, if you enjoy what other people do, um, I just read in the studio earlier that Tommy Twilight, who is on uh, Tuesday nights here on uh, Valley Free Radio, he has been uh, nominated to be the uh, Massachusetts Beat Poet Laureate. So that's pretty cool. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a Beat Poet Laureate. And Tommy is one now. So hooray. Um, so yeah. If you want to donate, it's really helpful. Uh, you're, we will get a $10 match and yeah. Um, thanks. All right. Again, let's finish up tonight with the, uh, pearl. And so it turns out, honestly, that for hundreds of years, scientists have actually been puzzled over how oysters and other mollusks create perfectly symmetrical pearls from irregularly shaped bits of sand or debris. And so a new paper shows that oysters, mussels, and other mollusks use mathematical rules seen throughout nature in order to make these incredibly beautiful uh, pearls. I want to say, you know, it's like they're, they're usually put in with like gems and and things like that. Um, but they're not really a gem. They're, they're a pearl, like they're their own thing. <laughs> um, and so as you probably know, pearls are made of, uh, nacre, which is layers of mineral and protein, uh, which the mollusk basically extrudes around an irritant. So for the muscle, it's actually just meant to, uh, create a nice rounded, um, capsule around a, uh, irritant. <laughs> so it's not doing it because it's pretty, it's doing it because it's uncomfortable, um, which I always think is interesting. And so it turns out that each new layer adapts over the original asymmetrical center and it adapts precisely to the one preceding it in order to smooth out irregularities, which eventually leads to round pearls. And so this is according to a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in October. 
Nacre is this incredibly beautiful, iridescent, shiny material that we see in the insides of some seashells or on the outside of pearls, says Lara Otter, a biochemist at the Australian National University in Canberra. And so the researchers found that the mollusks balance two basic capabilities. First is that they correct growth aberrations that appear as the pearl forms, thus preventing bumps from persisting and creating a lopsided pearl. In addition, the mollusks adjust the thickness of nacre layers so that if one layer turns out thick, the next will be thinner. This helps the pearl to maintain a similar average thickness in order to help it look perfectly round and uniform. The researchers looked at Keshi pearls collected from Akoya pearl oysters from an Australian pearl farm. They used a diamond wire saw to cut a pearl in half and then examined the layers of nacre using Raman spectroscopy. One pearl had 2,615 layers deposited over 548 days. They found that the thickness of layers are governed by a phenomena called pink noise, in which the thickness of layers may look random, but they are actually dependent on the thickness of previous layers. And so basically, pink noise is a phenomenon in which uh, something that seems random is actually is actually has a pattern. And that pattern is that new versions of the phenomenon are actually in tune with those that have already happened. And so it's also found, for instance, in seismic activity. Uh, You can find pink noise in classical music and even monitoring heartbeats and brain activity, according to co-author Robert Hovden, a material scientist and engineer at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. These phenomena belong to a universal class of behavior and physics, Hovden says. And so it turns out that the mollusks are even able to use this to self-heal defects without any kind of template or external scaffolding. Notes Otter, these humble creatures are making a super light and super tough material so much more easily and better than we do with all of our technology. (laughs) Made of just calcium, carbonate, and protein, nacre is 3,000 times tougher than the materials from which it's made of. And so, yeah, again, this is another great place to talk about biomimicry. So if we can better understand how this happens, we could potentially make uh, better materials, uh, artificial materials that are able to mimic this. And again, using things that have already been created through longstanding trial and error through um, evolution, it's a lot easier than starting from scratch. Um, And so, yeah, it's really fascinating the fact that it, that the mollusk actually figures out a way to kind of fill in the gaps and keep it from being bumpy. That is the coolest thing to me that it 
figures out like, because the whole point is to have something that's completely rounded so that there's no sharp edges or anything or bumps so that it's more comfortable because the whole point is that it was uncomfortable to begin with. Well, you know, for certain values of uncomfortable because we don't really, um, they don't really have a central nervous system in the way that we do. Um, but yeah, very cool and very interesting. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Um, just a programming note. I will not have a new show next week because I will be visiting my parents for Thanksgiving. Um, and I hope again that everyone has a wonderful holiday and, um, just one more time, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, thanks. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.